My name is Kondwani Mwase. And the next episode is Just Imagine. What do they say about Rania? Oh, geez. Um, I would say it's two camps for strangers and students. Um, there are people who don't know you but hate you very much. Um, people who don't know you but love you very much. Um, which is a very strange and polarizing thing to experience as a person, but it's very yeah. true. Um, yeah. So people who pedestal you are people who throw you out. I'm, I'm not, I hate both of those things. I'm imperfect. Whenever somebody comes up, I'm like, I'm a huge fan. I'm like, sit down. Let me disappoint you real quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where's the art coming through? For me, art does... Um, Art does the work of liberation all the time, right? Art imagines things before things are real. I could talk to you about um, the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, right? I could give you statistics, right? I can um, tell you how many people died at sea. And it all feels so far removed. And then you get my friend, my dear friend, Warsan Shirev, the poet. Um, she writes, you have to understand nobody puts their children on a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Right? She's able to take something that feels like this political debate and yeah. she's like, forget all of that. Yeah, make it real. Um, absolutely make it real and speak to you in a very direct and plain way. Art has a way of touching people and inviting people into the conversation. Good morning. Good day. Or good evening. And welcome to 54 Lights. This show is meant to shed light on undertold stories out of Africa. Our vision is to introduce you to some extraordinary people doing incredible things. And to ultimately change the lens through which African and Africans are seen. Rania is an artist, an anti-oppression consultant, and a truly, truly remarkable person. She's the founder and owner of a consulting firm, um, which you can find at her website called Rania Writes, and is somebody that I heard speak at Six Degrees Conference in Toronto. I went to this conference with my daughter, and I wasn't too sure what I would experience when I was there. But we looked on the agenda, the conference agenda, and saw that there was this talk being given by Rania, and the talk was titled, How to Talk to My Racist Uncle. For whatever reason, my 11-year-old daughter said, let's go to that. Um, I was kind of interested to go to that as well, so we ended up going to that performance. I use the word performance specifically and intentionally there because if there's something I found out about Rania that day is that she is a remarkably talented artist, um, a spoken word artist, if you will. And we were both pulled in to uh, her speech, which really talked about how to navigate confrontation and how to navigate uncomfortable situations. And it is, it became apparent to me, rather, uh, that she is really at home with confrontation. She has a comfort with conflict 
that is somewhat unnatural, but is um, remarkable and something that we should all and can all learn from. So I'm really excited about today's episode because it is going to introduce you, if you don't know her already, to Rania. If you do know her already, then um, then superb. You'll hear maybe, hopefully, something different that you haven't heard before. Um, but Rania is a remarkable talent, as I mentioned before. Um, and I'm just uh, excited at the possibilities uh, of this conversation and where this will take us. So today's episode is Just Imagine, featuring Rania. And here, in part, is that conversation. Um, my name is Rania Al-Mujammer. So Rania is a name that's actually present in a lot of different languages. It's in Greek, it's in Sanskrit, it's in Arabic. Um, in Sudanese, it means... Um, queen or um, some interpretations are to move like water or to see as far as your eyes can see. And al-mujammer means hot like coals or embers. Mm. Um, and it's from a story that runs in my family that um, someone in our family had walked on fire. Um, you're familiar with your background. So you mentioned uh, Sudanese. What does it mean to be a Sudanese Canadian? Um, to be honest, for me, uh, my experience of a Sudanese upbringing, and I really want to be clear about drawing that distinction, is Sudan is a super diverse place um, with over a thousand um, tribes, clans, languages. Um, so my experience of being Sudanese is going to look super different from a lot of people's experiences. I'm fairly privileged in that context, in the context of, you know, shadism, colorism, and the history of um, the civil wars in Sudan. Um, I'm on the privileged side of that equation. So for me, to be honest, I grew up in a really political um, environment in a highly politicized family, um, in a, also in a fairly academic family, um, and in a very tight-knit family. What do you do? Um, so my work is, I often, I often, yeah. I often ask my seconds. family that question, right? And yeah. I, I love to play that game at Christmas when my family's all together. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you think? <laughs> Nobody has any clue you know <laughs> um, I do two things uh, first and foremost I have a creative practice um, as a writer a theater maker um, a multidisciplinary performer and I occasionally dabble in other types of you know interdisciplinary things like installation art so on and so forth that brings in some of my formal and my creative um, training together um, and the second aspect of my work is consultation, education, and agitation. Um, so I consult and work with teaching um, communities, individuals, organizations, um, uh, a capacity to, A, believe that liberation is an achievable outcome, and to start wrapping their heads around that and imagining it so that when we get there, they recognize it. Secondly, a personal capacity to intervene in injustice, and a rethinking, redesigning, and reimagining what systems look like if they're made to serve all of us. So a bit of it is like 3D, multi-level systems thinking. And a bit of, most of it is really having very human-to-human -human moments with people. Um, I've been really lucky to talk to a million people over the course of my career. So I've had an opportunity to have a 
a good cross-section of people that I've had a lot of deep and meaningful and uh, life-changing conversations with. Um, so it, to me, to be honest, in my consultation, where I predominantly work with contemporary arts institutions because I'm an artist. Those are the spaces yeah. where I'm most familiar. But I also work in digital justice, which is the intersection of social justice and technology. I'm particularly interested in uh, digital identity and privacy and how bias is programmed into technology. Um, and then I work in two other uh, portfolios, racialized maternal health, which is a health equity portfolio that looks at the pregnancy and birthing experiences of racialized black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, and then... Um, in gender-based violence advocacy, which is my longest-standing portfolio, um, which to me all actually is pretty they're interconnected. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're not necessarily separate in that way, but they're separate in ways that different industries approach me to have the conversation. So to, my job as an artist, my job as a consultant is exactly the same thing, to make the invisible visible. Mm-hmm. I think artists are, to use James, to quote James Baldwin, all artists eventually have to tell the truth and vomit up the anguish. So it's a big part of it, right? Is really raw, uncomfortable truth telling, mm. and art is about. Is, it can disrupt you in a really, make you contend with things in a way that moves faster than the speed of words. Mm. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I can give you an image, and that image can conjure so much more for you than what I might be able to tell you in a conversation. Yeah. Or I can show you a, a movement piece or a, a theater piece that through the 3D ways that it embodies everything, everything is intentional from the movement to the costuming to the to the language, to the cadence of people, to the mood that's being embodied that will communicate a particular something to you. Um, but also it will be a thing that w- where you see yourself reflected. Yeah. Um, often for people in our communities, particularly for my, in my experiences as a black woman, we're looked at, but we're not really seen. Um, so there's a voyeurism that happens in our communities. And when... I do something and people say, well, well I, like, I see you, you know, um, often black women will come up to me after a performance and just squeeze my hand and they don't have a whole lot else to say and they just go. And it's just that moment of affirmation of I see you and you see me. And so it, art is an opportunity um, to see the people who see you too um, and to define the ways in which you want to be seen. Why is it Rania writes and not Rania speaks? As I'm, and I'll, I'll I'll qualify that question because you obviously, when you say art, I'm now interpreting writing as as your your primary chief form of art, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. However, when I saw you speak and I'm listening to you now, your oral um, capacity is just outstanding, right? So why is it Rania writes and not Rania speaks? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. something else? Yeah, I mean... Most often people see the writing when it's articulated verbally, right? But I think me, like for myself, like almost all the writers that I know, you're perpetually writing in your head. You really are. You, you, you pick up a combination of words and you click it together and you know what? That feels right. You turn that over and you turn that over and you take a long hot shower and you find ways to string that word into saying something you've been trying to say for a while. Um, you wake up at night and you have a thing in your head and you, you know text it to yourself or you write it in, in your notebook really quickly so you don't forget it in the morning. So you're perpetually in the work of writing um, as a writer. That's actually the memory and the muscle that you're perpetually exercising. So if something has come out of my mouth, it's because I've turned it over in my head consciously or subconsciously, written it, rewritten it, edited it, so on and so forth um, in a lot of ways that it's enabled me to be very intentional about my language in the ways that I speak much 
in the ways that I write. Um, I also think there's something extraordinary about something that's fleeting, right? Not everything has got to be documented. I'm also, it's also an exercise in letting go of your ego, right? Yeah. Not everything, not everything I'm going to say is going to be worth putting in a book. <laughs> right, right. That is also okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and sometimes like... You have to embrace that reality, I suppose. Exactly, right? I think it, there's something extraordinary about art that doesn't have to be a product and into something. And it can just happen when you experience it in that moment and it's fleeting and it's gone. Um, so I think it's interesting as like a, a process of art making. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I also like in my traditions, like the writing that happens, like we have this tradition called Arani Albanat, uh, girls' songs, which are often um, used to document um, the everyday lives of Sudanese women, which are not often um, well documented. Um, and so in these girls' songs, um, you have this, um, they start in the hosh. The hosh are yards. So I don't know if you have this, but back home, people's houses are like, they have yeah, a yard like in the front of the fence, yeah. right? Because they might eat chickens or grow food or whatever. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So there's a yard. Yeah. Um, so the houses that are divided by yards, it, women would be going about their daily tasks and they might start a rhyme and they might yell something. You might hear it over the fence and you do a call and response over the... the, uh, the so yeah. they're actually really organically written, but yeah. never actually written down. Um, so they're this sort of really informal participatory um, art making practice. Um, it is, it travels through communities and neighborhoods. It takes on different accents. Somebody might mishear the rhyme. Therefore, it, either you end up with two versions of the song or it changes the song entirely. Um, it's, it's a, an organic thing that changes when the story is in somebody else's mouth. It starts to yeah. take on that that particular um, cadence, that texture, that sound, sure. the way of thinking, the language. Um, and so It's unpredictable, right? It, and it doesn't cannot, belong to anyone. That's right. Exactly. So and nothing we say is original. Sometimes people, I'll say something to someone and I'll see that it ended up in something they wrote. And I know it's not plagiarism, actually, because they just heard it and it resonated and sat in their head and it came out in another way. And I'm, I'm not, you know, vain enough to think that I'm the only person to ever string those four words together, right? <laughs> right. Um, just as I know that everything I've ever read is coming out of my mouth. Every time I open my mouth, the wisdom of so many other people is it's, it's making its way out, right? Yeah. So it, um, it interests me as a practice of art making. Um, it interests me to rethink what writing is. And I worship of the written word is one of the cultural features of white supremacy. So one of the ways in which we expect knowledge to look a very particular way. So I challenge that through um, speaking things that, you know, people always tell me, to write a book about this, write an article about yeah. this. No, I don't think I need to. <laughs> I'm curious. You obviously seem like a very uh, deliberate person in what you do. Uh, Rania at, at 5, 10, 12, how did you... Uh, I always ask people, was there a moment in your life that sort of was like a, the lights went on and it's sort of like, this is what I'm going to do? Or like... How is your youth in terms of getting you to this place? Mm, I've always known that I was going to write. Mm -hmm. I've known it since I was a child, that my grandfather was a journalist, and I, all I ever wanted to do was like be a journalist like mm -hmm. him. Um, so I thought I would write as a journalist. Yeah. But, I mean, that morphed and morphed and morphed over the years. Um, but, uh, to be honest, I, I've always been a voracious reader, a diligent student, um, and I don't necessarily just mean in the academic sense. I was because I had no choice because I had African parents, you know, that was not, you it's were going to get it right okay, <laughs> at school. But I was a diligent learner. Um, 
And, you know, I still, I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly, I have like self-directed learning plans and I'm absorbing things constantly. Um, and I talk a lot, but I, I talk not even 5% of the amount that I listen or take in from the world, right? So I've always known that it was leading me to this place. Um, and I'm, I was always reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and then finding something in a book that would just be like, oh my God, I wish I wrote that. Yeah. I wish I wrote that. Yeah. Um, and, I'll, I, and then feeling like, okay, well, one day I'm going to write that thing and it's going to give that moment to someone yeah, else. For and, sure. Um, Which has probably already happened. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it has. You know, I've been in <laughs> books and people have written to me and said that's, that's moved yeah. me in a particular way. Um, and it's funny because people will write me and be like, I can't believe you killed off this character. I'm so upset by that. Um, and feel really like offended by it. And, and I actually think it's funny and endearing um, and kind that people feel so invested in yeah. something you made up in your head that they're like, um... Don't that I can't believe you killed Kofi. Yeah. That was not fair. <laughs> okay, so it's it's really um, I've I've sort of been on this trajectory, and I've had a great supportive environment. There's a lot of extremely creative people in my family. Both my parents are chemists, but we're also working artists throughout most of their lives. Wow. My dad uh, plays the lute and uh, was visually really talented at making uh, traditional Sudanese gourd carvings and um, charcoal sketches. So he was always creatively producing um my mom was um a fashion designer and so i remember her when i was a kid like really tiny taking teeny teeny little beads and sewing them onto the bottom of wedding gowns like endlessly precision repetitive meditative purposeful um and so i i saw the labor of making art um and to me that was actually really interesting and exciting um and it drew me in and I always understood art to be work um, and I knew it would be my life's work. I just, do you know, um, there's a lot of things that I could be doing with my art and finding the, the happy medium in between community organizing and creative practice has been the it for me. Yeah. And so that's, that leads me to my next question, which is how do you choose which path to drive down? You've got a lot of things uh, that you could be talking and speaking and putting your art and your voice and your energy towards. How does Rania choose, I'm going to write about this, or I'm going to put this into my curriculum, if curriculum is wrong, mm-hmm. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, how do you, how do you make those choices? Um, I often think about really what's, what do I feel compelled to do with my life, right? And I feel compelled to justice. And I think about what are the skills that I know I can use to navigate to to get justice, both interpersonally and in my community. Um, That's been for me, to be honest, teaching people some really basic things, um, which has been giving people language to name the things they've always known, first and foremost. Secondly, um, giving people tools to do what they know is to be right. I don't... I never change people. People change themselves, right? So when people come into a lot of spaces, they already come hungry for that knowledge. Um, some Sometimes resistant, even though they know it's the thing for that sure. they need, right? Um, and it's been, for me, my lived experiences that have really informed the content of my creative practice and my work. Um, it's been the things that I learn about that intrigue me. Um, I know that I can connect the dots. That's been my gift most of my life. 
you know, writing, yeah, I've been somewhat gifted in it, but it's mostly been diligent work at yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but well, what, what people see is the end result. Exactly. For me, it's actually been my capacity to connect the dots um, between systems, spaces, institutions, experiences, so on and so forth, that I can usually take something, somebody who's stargazing at something, and I can say, that's Andromeda. I can show that to you. Um, I didn't make Andromeda. Yeah. Yeah, you see it with your own eyes. Um, but I'm just guiding you towards it. So it's been mostly my lived experiences. And for me, um, I don't want people to feel powerless when they feel like they can't transform a system. Where you have the least influence and control to change the world, you have the most influence and control to change yourself and to transform your relationships. One of the functions of the system has told us that we don't matter and our relationships don't matter. But actually, that's the, th the only thing that actually matters. So um, for me, that's been like when I talk to people about consent culture, that's about transforming ourselves and our relationships. That's about finding better ways to be with each other because we are coming to a point now where we recognize we just can't fucking carry on in ways that we have. Something's got to give. Exactly. Um, or when I talk to people about transformative justice, you know, a lot of people are politically, theoretically up here prison and police abolitionists mm -hmm. how do you do that in your life how does it make it how do you make it real how do you make it real you know yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm i do work that puts me in harm's way often yeah. um and i've made, I made a choice 12 years ago not to call the police i've never called the police but that's a, a, a serious choice right yeah. so what are what are the small choices that lead up to being able to choose that as an actual choice yeah. when, when a moment arises right when you feel you know unsafe but i can really take something that's a conversation like police abolitionism and i can ask someone what do you want the police to do when you call them right we want the police to help anybody who needs help and stop the harm from happening what does happen when we call the police people either get more hurt yeah or they show up two hours late yeah. with a notepad like right so i i walk people through like I, I can walk you back from something you didn't even think was possible mm -hmm. right like i can walk you back from thinking that we need to do something that's if we abolish prisons, that we need to put something in their place that's going to take up that whole footprint. Yeah. I can say, actually, forget that as an option. Um, so I've been able to just take the really big political values that I hold in my life and develop content that helps people practice that in their day-to-day -day choices. Is that the creativity? Is that where you're talking about the creativity comes through? Is that you can imagine how that becomes real and you help people get there? Absolutely. I mean, I could see the future <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and to me, that's an extraordinary thing to be able to, to see the future. You know, there were people who saw a world without slavery and people called them mad. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. There were people who saw that. There were people who saw that and people... Slavery is so ingrained into the fabric of the Americas. Yeah, for sure. That people could not fathom a world where it didn't exist. Yeah, it's foundational. Neither enslaved nor slave owner. Right. Right? right? Nobody. Yeah. So uh, for those people, they, they were able to see this very moment. Right? You uh, have a way of, um, again, this is, I'm taking, uh, unfortunately, I'm taking one sample size and a couple of talks I've seen online, but you have this comfort, which you just described. This comfort with confrontation. Like, where does that come from? First, I mean, I had got a resiliency for conflict growing up. A Just like the cultural context that I grew up in, uh, the, the political realities of the communities that I grew up in. I come from a very passionate, large family. 
Um, I have four sisters. My my father has five daughters who all grew up in a very small space. No brothers. No brothers. My gosh. Yeah, I you know so it's it either either people give congratulations or condolences. <laughs> I was gonna either say. or. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Um, so that sort of environment just like teaches you that conflict is an absolutely organic part of life. And because you're, the people you're in conflict with are people you love, um, it feels like you, you got to sort it out and you're going to be living in this small space like, continuously. Yeah. So back figure it out. Yeah. So th- there's no leaving. Okay. <laughs> you either go to university or you get married. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah, exactly. it. So, um, so I'm, I'm largely unfazed and unbothered also because nobody says anything to me. I haven't heard before at this point. Okay. Like I've done this long enough that like nobody's like homophobic in a brand new way to me. <laughs> like I've heard it. It's not new. I, I've heard it. I've, I have a response for this somewhere in my memory bank. Um, I can change and challenge that. I can I can also listen without feeling the urge to say anything back, right? Which is a hard skill to develop, mm-hmm. the deep listening, the listening without any desire to respond. Any desire or any compulsion? No compulsion, no desire, and no instinct, nothing. I just turn that off and I listen, right? Often, if, I, if then I can formulate an actual response, and I often don't even share it. You know, say, you know, I'm going to think about that. And I often do. And when I get, give myself permission and I let go of that sense of urgency and also the perfectionism that comes with it, and I say, okay, I give myself permission to have an imperfect conversation or a conversation that's not going to fix everything. Everything seems a lot more manageable then. Um, another side of it is that, like, genuinely, really and truly, I can't say that I believe in transformative justice and a world without police or prisons if I can't resolve conflict. What am I going to anticipate now? Either we all throw each other away because we're in tension with each other perpetually, or we do need policing and violent institutions, and I don't believe that. That's not an option for me. So um, that, to me, is part of actually living my politics in the day-to-day um, which means that just navigating all sorts of conflict with ease. And frankly, when somebody stands up and swears at me or screams at me or sends me hate mail, the reality is I recognize that actually says a lot more about them than it does me. Um, it says, you know, where they're at. And I actually, I've had, I've done this long enough to actually see it come back full circle of someone screaming at me in a workshop and coming to talk to me four years later and saying, sorry, I wasn't ready to hear the things you had to say then. Where do you go um, to learn? I learn from everything and everyone. I learn most diligently from children in my life, actually, um, because A, kids are really honest, um, and I want to figure out ways to retain that with a healthy sense of empathy um, so that, you know, there's no need to be mean to someone because you're being honest, right? But also so that you can be truthful and not shy away from any conflict or not lie because you don't want to be uncomfortable right um and then also like my my the children in my life are very good at um doing things that adults in my life suck at (laughs) they're very good at apologizing without feeling like it's making them smaller yeah yeah. um they're very good at um i'm saying oh i didn't know i know now (laughs) okay um they're just really good at extraordinary things i i read Constantly, 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 um, constantly switching the books. So this is my present things that I'm constantly referring to that are currently in my office. <laughs> as you can see, there's books everywhere. Um, I am constantly um, reading 
articles, watching videos by my favorite social justice educators, looking at memes, having really amazing conversations with some of the extraordinary people that I have in my life, um, talking to my parents, talking to my elders, um, attending workshops, going to classes. I absorb knowledge in whatever way I can get it, listening to podcasts, listening to music. You know, I take um, uh, took an intensive on composition, like musical composition. Yeah. Um, and I have some musical background and I, I train as a vocalist because it also, it helps me, it helps me deliver like keynote after keynote after keynote without losing my voice too. Right. right? Um, so I'm constantly investing in my capacity to do the work that I do. I take vocal classes. I take dance classes. I'll be going to dance rehearsal right after this. Um, I'll be, uh, I take, um, writing classes. I take language classes, um, because they all help me approach my practice from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm constantly investing in myself in that way um, because it really, it teaches me something about myself I don't know. Um, and I'm always just amazed at my capacity physically, emotionally, intellectually to learn new things and to change my mind. I think that's one of the most uh, extraordinary things to be able to do is change yourself. Writer, speaker, teacher, student. Student. This one is I was curious about. Your target audience is everybody in their mama. sentence again my work slash life is problematic because there is never enough time energy or resources my work slash life is important because i am constantly making uh, the younger version of myself proud and showing up for the people i care about I know you're right. It wasn't recorded. You're going on vacation two weeks. Go anywhere in the world. Where are you going? Mm, honestly, I would go home. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, you've got one. No, it's not fair. Maybe you've got two tickets that you take with you. I take um, my partner and our youngest son, <laughs> Okay. That's why I added the extra. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last question in the, or second to last question, in the movie about your life, who plays Ronnie? Honestly, I'm torn between Queen Latifah and Missy Elliott because I love both. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what is the name of the movie? Uh, Mascara and the Pins. <laughs> because somebody once sent me hate mail repeatedly for like a month and and every single time he was going off about you're too much mascara and too many opinions. <laughs> I was like, I feel like that one day will be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> so there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone 
who's participated in today's show, be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening.